0: Well good morning Hillcrest great to see everybody this morning we have worshiped the Lord in spirit and in truth and now it's time for us to take the word of God and worship in the word I love the word of God I believe it's God's word living and abiding and enduring and free from error to all of us who know him so that we might know him his plan his purpose and what he's about to accomplish not only in our lives but for the world and through the world as we wait on Christ to come again. Take your copy of God's Word and be finding Acts chapter 18 this morning if you're not there already. And as you're doing that, let me once again say good morning to everyone here at the Nine Mile campus, especially those of you that are our guests today. We welcome you and are so happy to have you here today. And then to those of you that are at Spanish Trail today, we love our Spanish trailers. Let's put our hands together at Nine Mile and welcome the good folks at Spanish Trail. Brad said that a moment ago, I got to be with them uh, last week and it was always a joy and is always a joy to be able to be there with those wonderful people in person. It's always good to be back here at Nine Mile as well and so we welcome all of you at Spanish Trail as well as those of you that are watching us either on Facebook Live or on our online uh, website Uh, somewhere around the country. We welcome you and are so thankful that you're tuning in with us uh, today. We're in the midst of a series on Paul's missionary journeys called Sent. Paul was sent by God, sent by the church at Antioch to take the message of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to the uttermost part of the world in fulfillment of the great commission of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Likewise, every single one of us who are a disciple, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, have been sent by God On that same mission it may not be to some far-flung place on the other side of the globe it might be across the street it might be in your school it might be in your community it might be at your place of business but we're all sent with the message of the gospel you shall be my witnesses to Jerusalem Judea Samaria and to the uttermost part of the world and what a wonderful ride this has been riding along with the Apostle Paul here in this wonderful survey of the last part of the book of Acts. And as we open our Bibles today to the 18th chapter of Acts, we're going to talk for a few minutes together about some discipleship priorities for the growing Christian. Paul is oftentimes noted as an evangelist. But Paul, as much as he was an evangelist, even more to the point, he himself was a disciple of Jesus Christ And Paul, as he evangelized others unto Christ, made it his mission in life to disciple them in Christ. Did you know nothing is more important for you and your walk with the Lord to grow spiritually as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? I've said it often. God has a plan in mind for you, and that plan is for you to become a person of gigantic mountain moving faith he wants you to grow in the likeness of his son the Lord Jesus Christ and as we all ought to know by now the primary mission of our church really every other church it would be a New Testament church is to make disciples Jesus said that in the great commission go and make disciples of all nations we say here at Hillcrest that our mission is to help people in becoming like Christ And our text this morning in Acts chapter 18 is a beautiful illustration, an example of uh, how not only we're to do that, but also it helps us to identify some of the most important discipleship priorities for believers whose lives tend to be pulled in every direction. The outline I'm going to use this morning is the same outline I used with a group of mothers here at Mom Life this past Monday. It's always a challenge to be invited into a room of nearly a 100 women and you're the only guy there that freaked me out a little bit but I finally settled in and the topic of the morning was how to be an effective disciple in a world of business what are the discipleship priorities for busy moms well as I began to study this week I found that this is a text of scripture that helps us all to understand what the spiritual priorities are for the busy Christian in general What are the discipleship priorities for the growing Christian? That's what we're going to talk about for a few minutes today. We are going to look at the last stages of Paul's second missionary journey. Paul has three missionary journeys that are identified by Luke in the latter chapters of the book of Acts. And the second one, in my opinion, is the most exciting, the most thrilling. That's the one I want to one day retrace. Paul's winding up what would be a three-year, 3,000-mile journey journey that began in Antioch of Syria, working his way along with his missionary team westward, first through South Galatia, and then across the Aegean Sea and into Europe, and he lands in Macedonia and preaches the gospel in those very significant cities of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, on down to Athens, into modern Europe, what we call Greece, and then from Athens, he works his way 50 miles due west right across the Corinthian isthmus to the city of Corinth itself, 500 to 700,000 people, the most decadent city maybe in the history of the entire world outside of Sodom. And now Paul is winding this missionary journey down, bringing it to a conclusion. Somewhere along the line there in Corinth, he discerns that it's time for him to go back home at least for a while, and he makes a preparation for that return voyage. And then as he does, we're reminded that Paul and his cohorts are not only doing the work of evangelism, crucial as that is, they were just as concerned about people coming to know Christ and about people becoming like Christ. And that's our concern here at Hillcrest for all of you and for all of us as well. So let's talk about it for a few minutes. What are the discipleship priorities for a growing Christian? What are the spiritual priorities of life when to do everything that every expert tells you that you need to do in life, from exercising five hours a day to brushing your teeth 30 minutes at a time to flossing those same teeth to doing all of these things that you need to do to be healthy and happy, that'd take more than 40 hours a day. We don't have that kind of time. What do you do? What are the priorities as it relates to your life with Jesus Christ? I'm going to give you three to write down this morning, all of them taken from the last part of Acts 18. The first, of course, learn to feed yourself. Discipleship means learning to become a self-feeder. For far too long, we've relied on pastors and Sunday school teachers, connect group teachers and leaders and student pastors and children's pastors to do all of our spiritual growing, for us. It's been about us setting and getting fed by somebody else who's done the hard work of trying to grow themselves and sharing that with people like you and me. Did you know that as sophisticated and as well-educated and well-schooled and well-versed as Paul was in the scriptures, that he still had this daily habit of feeding himself spiritually. And if the Apostle Paul needed to engage in the spiritual disciplines, you better believe that you need to do it as well, and so do I. That's because the primary goal of his life was to have a deeper, more productive relationship with Christ. One of the great phrases that Paul uses is the phrase, not that I have already attained all this. He made it very clear that he hadn't arrived in his spiritual life That like everybody else he was leading to Christ, he was on a journey with Christ himself. And that journey would never end until one day he had fully become like Christ with a resurrection body in the new heaven and the new earth. So Paul wants to know Christ himself. He wants to become like Christ. His mission statement basically says that. In his autobiographical account in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says there beginning in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him. I love those three phrases that he uses there in that lengthy paragraph. And I didn't even read the whole paragraph. But Paul says, I want to gain Christ. I want to know Christ. I want to become like Christ. All to be the goal of every person setting within the sound of my voice this morning. Well, how do you do that? How do you disciple yourself personally so that you ensure that you're becoming like Christ? Well, Paul did that the same way we're supposed to do that. He did that, for example, through a meticulous study of God's Word. Now, his God's Word was the Old Testament, but he was an avid student of the Old Testament, and he read the Old Testament, and he studied the Old Testament, and he memorized the Old Testament. That was his Bible, and he did it meticulously. You remember that passage in uh, his letter to Timothy, I think it's 2 Timothy, where he was imprisoned, and encouraged Timothy, come as quickly as you can, do your best to come before winter, and when you do, bring the What? Bring the books, bring the parchments, because I need stuff to read. I need stuff to keep me engaged in my relationship with the Lord. Paul also fed himself through an active, engaged prayer life, just like we're supposed to. He had active communion with the very Christ that he was living in union with. And for all of us who are saved, living in union with Christ The goal of life is to live in communion with the Lord who's living within us. Paul is a model of powerful prayer, particularly intercessory prayer, where he often engages through his writings in praying for the churches that he had helped to found. Two of the strongest prayers that Paul ever prayed, at least in written form, are found in the first chapter of Ephesians and in the third chapter of Ephesians. Powerful praying for deep-seated stuff, not for creature comforts and not for things that won't last. He prays for eternal things in the life of the people that know Christ. Here in Acts chapter 18, you see Paul exercising another spiritual discipline, one that I bet you've never exercised. It's called in the Bible a Nazarite vow. And we are reminded, as Paul exercises this Nazarite vow before the Lord that Paul, the Christian, is still Paul, a Jew. So this is Paul, the Jew, engaging in an extreme spiritual discipline in order to grow himself personally in his own individual relationship with the Lord. Look at verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer in Corinth and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. That's going back home. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Kincrea, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. Now Paul's wrapping up this very faithful and fruitful ministry in Corinth, and he begins his journey back, so that he can visit once again the church that had sent him back in Antioch in Syria, just north of the modern-day land of Israel, and. He takes with him Priscilla and Aquila, who have become very important and strategic ministry partners. They've become very valuable to Paul in many ways. But before they set sail for Ephesus, they stop in Synchria, and that's the southern port of Corinth. And Paul stops to get a haircut. In fact, more accurately, Paul stops to get his head shaved. I got a haircut yesterday and I thought about being a living example to all of you this morning. I had uh, asked the barber, why don't you just go ahead and shave it down? And he absolutely refused to do it. And I said, why aren't you going to give me a head shave? He said, because I know those people and I don't want to hear it from them. (laughs) So we just got a nice clean cut this morning. Paul got it all cut off. And that was because he was concluding an extended time of a demonstrable vow before the Lord. He'd taken what apparently was a Nazarite vow. And the reason that he did that is because he went through a season in his life where he wanted to demonstrate to himself as well as publicly his absolute total commitment and devotion to a God that meant so much to him. The Hebrew word natsir is a word that means to separate or to consecrate. And that's what the vow taker was doing. You took a Nazarite vow, you were separating yourself exclusively in a demonstrable way unto the Lord for a season. The closest thing for us, we obviously don't take Nazarite vows today because we're not Jews. But the closest thing to us would be an extended time of fasting. But you could could be under a Nazarite vow. If you you fasted as long as some people took Nazarite vows, you'd be dead. So you can only fast for so long. There was no time limit with a Nazarite vow, though it was limited. It's defined for the Jew in the sixth chapter of the book of Numbers, and there are all kinds of qualifications. One, it was totally voluntary. Nobody made anybody take a Nazarite vow, so Paul did it of his own free will, of his own accord, no compulsion to do it. But if you decided to do it, God wanted you to be serious about it. You didn't do it willy-nilly. That was an offense unto a holy God. The Bible says you don't drink wine. In fact, you couldn't even eat a grape. Couldn't eat the skin of a grape. Couldn't eat the flesh of a grape. Couldn't eat the seed of a grape. No grapes, no grape products. No dead bodies. Most of us would say amen to that. Unless it was your mother or father that died, or your child, you couldn't even be in the same room with a corpse because of ritual, spiritual defilement. And then most obviously, you couldn't cut your hair. Most of us equate, Sam- Samson was under a Nazarite vow. It's the reason he had long hair, source of his strength. So you didn't cut your hair as long as you were in the midst of the vow. And likely, you say, well, why did Paul determine to do this? Well, you'd have to ask him. But I think that he did it because of his incredible gratitude to God for his faithfulness to him at Corinth. If you were here last week, both campuses, we talked about God being with us. And Paul was a little bit down and in the dumps when he got to Corinth because life hadn't been really easy on him. And so God came through in this vision and says, You need not worry. You need to rest easy because nobody's going to harm you. I will be with you. And God was with him. He was thankful to God that he'd provide friendship in Aquila and Priscilla. He was thankful to God that he'd provide income working opportunities and tent making together with them. He was thankful to God because of the financial gift that arrived when Timothy and Silas finally arrived from Macedonia after a number of weeks, even months. And he was very thankful that he had free reign, that the charges were dropped against him, that the Roman procurator actually took his side for once so he began, as the old song said, to count his many blessings and name them one by one. And he was astounded at what the Lord had done. And because of that, he dedicated himself and he consecrated himself even more fully unto the Lord through the taking of this Nazarite vow. And then once that vow was concluded, you demonstrated that you had fulfilled your requirements in that vow by cutting off all of that hair. And then you would go to either the tabernacle later the temple, or you'd go to the synagogue. You'd go someplace where you could offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving unto the Lord, and then you take all that hair and you'd throw it into the fire. And that would be the final act, the consummation of the vow. Now, we're going to see here in just a minute, Paul was in a hurry to get back home, and that may be one of the reasons why he's got to make it back to Jerusalem in time for one of the feasts, one of the festivals, Passover or Pentecost, because he needs to bring this vow to a final conclusion. But for the moment, what I want you to notice is Paul's careful attention to discipline himself spiritually. Paul understood something that everybody in the room has to understand. Every one of you at Spanish Trail have to understand that you are responsible for your own spiritual growth. I'm your pastor, I ain't your mama. You're responsible for feeding yourself spiritually. You're responsible for growing. We do what we do here, and it's the right thing to do. But it ought not be exclusive in your life. You're responsible like Paul was, discipline yourself. Discipleship begins at home. And in this very busy world, that means that you need a plan to slow down because you will not grow. Are you all still with me? Say Amen. You will not grow unless you plan to grow. You won't grow unless you plan to grow. Do you have a plan to grow? Do you have a plan to feed yourself personally? You got to slow down, let your soul catch up to your body. The antidote for spiritual stagnation is the same now as it was then. Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. Can we say that out loud together? Together, be still and know that that I am God. So discipleship priority number one, feed yourself. But then also you learn with others. You feed yourself first, but then you do what we're doing this morning. You learn with others. And certainly those of you that have been around Hillcrest for a while know that one of our core values at Hillcrest is connecting with others. Our mission at Hillcrest is to help people in becoming like Christ by worshiping God and Connecting with others and serving the world. So that's an important value, a core value. And connection is why there's such a thing called church. The church exists for connection. We connect with God, we connect with one another so we can be motivated to connect with a larger world that's lost and needs to know Jesus. And this is why God says that church is one thing you should not neglect. You don't neglect the church. You don't forsake the church. Hebrews 10 25. Let us not neglect our meeting together. As some people do. And we all know people that do. Don't neglect it. But encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. I still believe Jesus is coming again. How about you? I certainly do. And that's an incentive for us to be together more and more and more. Our coming together is a recognition publicly to each other and to the world that we believe Jesus, we're serious about his commands to live life and to do life together because we believe that he's coming. And not only we believe he's coming, we believe he's coming very soon. Paul never treated his connection to the people of God lightly. Yeah, he was deep personally, But he was also connected relationally. And you surely noticed by now that the first thing that Paul does in any of these cities that he goes into, the first thing that he does is to connect with who? With God's people. He goes to what we would call church, the Jewish assembly. He goes to synagogue, assuming, of course, there was one. He was surprised to get to Philippi and find there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi, but there was most other places. And if there was, He was the first one there be the first place that he went. So spiritual growth begins with you, yes, but it's always enhanced and always stimulated and sharpened when you do it with others. Acts 18 and 19, let's pick up the narrative. And they came, Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. But when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking his leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So when it says he went up and greeted the church, presumably that, of course, is Jerusalem, And remember, he's going there ostensibly for a feast where he can offer that final vow in fulfillment of his Nazarite vow that he took. So he lands at Caesarea, goes down to, well, actually goes up to Jerusalem because you always go up to Jerusalem. And then he went down to Antioch, even though Antioch is north of Jerusalem on the Mount. You always go up to Jerusalem and you always come down from Jerusalem regardless of the direction. That's Mount Zion language. So, Paul and Aquila and Priscilla cross the Aegean. They land in Asia, port of Ephesus. I'll have more to say about Ephesus next week as we kind of begin the third missionary journey together, the study of that. But Ephesus here represents the last stop of Paul's second missionary journey. And what little time he takes there, he spends it with the people of God, he spends it with brothers in the Lord, where he tries to help them understand, Jewish brethren that is, he helps them to understand that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that they've been looking for. That's interesting, he doesn't stay long there, even though this is another of the rare times he actually has a receptive audience in the synagogue. The only other place he's really welcomed in the synagogue is at Berea. And they didn't run him out of town, but the boys from Thessalonica came down. They ran him out of there. And so we would think that Paul's going to stay longer because they want him to stay there. They're interested in what he has to say. Got some real spiritual mojo going on. And so that makes it a bit strange. I think Ephesus, you remember when Paul and Silas were confused along with Timothy about where they were supposed to go, and they kept running into all those closed doors. I'm convinced that Ephesus was where Paul wanted to go to begin with. But God wanted him to go to Macedonia, sent him the vision, saying, come over to help us here in Macedonia. But he wanted to go to Ephesus because it was a really big city, and that was what was attractive to Paul about it. So we know he wanted to go there, and yet he doesn't stay very long. He, he gives them kind of a hit and run, but he promises to come back if God gives him an open door, but he's a man on a mission, and he's in a hurry to make it back to Palestine, back to Jerusalem for that feast. But what I want you to notice here is that not only is Paul quick to feed others, or to feed himself rather, that's not all he did. He grew with others because he saw the value of connecting with others for worship and the Word. The only thing you do is feed yourself spiritually, but you never connect with others. That can be somewhat of a dangerous thing, because you'll always tend to be captive to your own conceptions about things. And how many of you know people that claim to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, but never darken the door of the church? We all know people like that. You ever engage in a spiritual, some of the weirdest things that you'll ever hear in your life will come out. that can't be substantiated biblically, but they formed it. And there's nobody around them to hold them accountable to the truth. And this is why God wants, this is why we have church. It's why God doesn't want you flying isolated. Paul grew with others because he saw the value of connecting with others in the Word of God. He knew the Word was infallible, but he was not infallible. This book is infallible, but your pastor is not. That's why we encourage you when you come to church, bring a Bible with you, have it opened in front of you because I'm accountable to you as you're accountable to me. Now, you see that very concept motivating Paul as he embarks on his third missionary journey. The Word of God is infallible, but the chapter and verse divisions are not. They were put there much later. If I'm dividing this up, I start chapter 19 at what is chapter 18, verse 23. Because the third missionary journey actually begins in Acts 18, 23. After spending some time there, where is the there? Antioch, back to his home church. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the what? Say it out loud. All the disciples. So he stops, he goes up to Jerusalem, Worships at the temple, fulfills his Nazarite vow, goes down, then north to Antioch, fellowships with his brothers and sisters at Antioch, which was his sending church. By the way, that's a great reminder that Paul's mission was never separated from the local church. Never separated from the local church. We have an international mission board, but it's local churches that send missionaries. Can I have an amen? Amen. Never divorced from the local church. He was sent by the church, and by the way, his work in all these cities ended up resulting in church. So he was sent by the church, accountable to the church. His work resulted in church. And after a while, Paul would leave Antioch. After this time of fellowship and reporting, and he it's interesting, he follows the same route. And I'm not sure, that just kind of was one of those things. I've read the book. Don't tell me how many times I've read the book of Acts. And it had evidently just gone over my head that Paul starts all three missionary journeys going to the same. He goes to South Galatia every time. His first missionary journey, South Galatia. Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Second missionary journey, goes to those same four places. Strengthening the disciples, following up. How are you guys doing? Let's talk about the word a little bit. Let's make sure we're growing in the right kind of way. Third missionary journey goes back, same place. Starts with South Galatia, Pisidian Antioch. He probably goes in reverse order, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, but he visits all four same, uh, of those same churches, all three missionary journeys. Don't miss that. This is Paul the discipler, not just Paul the evangelist. This is Paul the pastor. This is Paul in love with the people of God. He's a gifted evangelist, no doubt about it, but he's also a discipler who realizes that growth is best accomplished together. He connects with the church, strengthens the disciples. He learns and grows with others because, as the Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another can we say it together together as iron sharpens iron so one person sharpens another that's right so you're all hanging with me so far say amen Amen. discipleship priority feed yourself grow with others final discipleship priority similar but more specific invest in somebody invest in somebody Now, that's exactly what Paul had done with Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. Now, Paul leaves them in Corinth, and this is exactly the multiplication process that we want to see happen at Hillcrest. Because now, what Paul does or did in Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila, we see Priscilla and Aquila now doing that same thing in Ephesus, investing in somebody they take what knowledge and insight they have about Jesus and they make a direct investment in the life of another person. Verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. That seems like a simple passage. It's actually kind of a difficult passage because there's several gaps in there that Luke doesn't completely fill out and leaves open for us to kind of do some interpretive work. And we don't have time to go uh, and plug all those gaps this morning. But what we do know about Apollos is that he was a very gifted man, very smart man, came from Alexandria in Egypt. Most famous library in the world was in Alexandria of Egypt, North Africa. So he was very well educated. He was a Jew uh, from Alexandria, big synagogue there. So he knew how to handle his Old Testament He was familiar with the Scriptures. The Bible says here he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, which ostensibly means something about Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. It's kind of an open-ended phrase. I want to know exactly what did you mean by that. Because some people think that Apollos was a well-educated lost man, well-educated in the Scriptures, but not saved. Others think that he was saved, but... Just inadequately so, he didn't have a full and right knowledge. I think probably the latter is true. He probably knew of God's plan to redeem a lost world through the sacrificial death of an anointed Messiah. He probably knew that. And apparently he knew that the Messiah was Jesus since he, the Bible says here, taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Another thing we know about him is that he was fervent in spirit, Most of the English translations use a small letter S, not a capital S. So that fervent in spirit is a euphemism for enthusiastic. Spirit being his personal spirit, and I think that's probably right. He's a man who's enthusiastic. He takes the pulpit, and he's a guy that you like to sit and listen to. Fervent in spirit, enthusiastic, fired up, and full of vigor. So that's Apollos. Well-educated, highly intelligent, an enthusiastic communicator, well-grounded in the Old Testament scriptures. But let me tell you something else we know about him. While he knew a lot, he didn't know enough. Uh, he has an incomplete. He's well-meaning, but he's got an incomplete understanding. The Bible says here he knew only the baptism of John, which meant he knew about the ministry of John the Baptist as the forerunner of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Likely, Apollos had been baptized in the baptism of John, declaring repentance for the forgiveness of his sin, but he'd not been baptized in the name of Christ. And apparently, He didn't have much of a clue about what New Testament baptism actually symbolized, either about the work of Christ or the transformation that had happened in the life of a person who'd been genuinely saved. And I'm sure, too, that there were other gaps in his understanding about the person and work of Jesus that probably needed to be Addressed. And so here you have there in the synagogue, you got Aquila and Priscilla hanging out, and they hear this guy get up there and they think, wow, this guy's a great speaker. He's a great communicator. And then he starts to wax theologically. And you've done that before. You ever watch Christian preachers on television? Oh, me. You had that happen. You've been in a Sunday school class or maybe in a young preacher in a pulpit, and you're just really impressed by that person, and then they say something, and you thought, oh, boy. Oh man, that's not right. Now, what are we going to do? Most of the time, we are so afraid of creating a conflict, we can't wait to find the door. We just let it alone, right? Unless there's something, I mean, if you're like me in my house and something's on television like that, I'll just talk back to the TV. That's not right. But Priscilla and Aquila realized what's at stake here, man. Critical time in the history of the gospel. So they stepped in. The Bible says they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more what? More accurately. Now, right, that's personal discipleship right there. How many of y'all do that with somebody? See, that's where we can grow as a church. This investment in somebody. We do pretty good coming to worship, and we do pretty good connecting in small group. We do life with others. But for most people, we can do a better job feeding ourselves. And as we feed ourselves and grow with others, we can do a much better job investing in somebody. Because that's a biblical model. This is, an, this is the kind of investment we all need to be making. You may not have time to pour into a bunch of people. You may not be able to do this with six or eight people. But you can disciple somebody. You don't have to have the whole New Testament committed to memory to do it. You can take what you do know and take somebody by the hand and lead them to a better understanding, a more complete understanding of the way of Christ. And here's what's beautiful some of you need to have somebody else do that to you. Notice Apollos does not resist that, he could have been proud. And looked at them and said, you're not the boss of me, man. They're the ones who gave me the pulpit. I don't see you up here preaching. No, he didn't do that. He was humble and he was teachable. God help us to never stop being teachable. Some people reach a certain stage in life, can't tell them anything. Amen. Don't you wish it weren't so? God help us to always be teachable. I heard Rick Warren years ago at one time Saddleback Church just exploding with growth. He was on a flight with W.A. Criswell who for 50 years pastored the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. And they were sitting together on the airplane coming back apparently from the same meeting. And Rick Warren said, I'll never forget that. W.A. Criswell reached into his briefcase, pulled out an eight and a half by eleven pad of paper and looked at me and said, tell me how you're doing it. It's an 80-year-old man, been pastoring for 50 years, never afraid to stop learning. And that was Apollos. The Bible says here he was fervent in spirit, but if you read between the lines, let me tell you something else it says. He was fervent in spirit. He was humble in spirit. He accepted the teaching and the leadership of others. And that humility of spirit, would eventually pay these tremendous dividends because after a while Apollos is going to become one of the most effective preachers in the history of the Christian church. The believers at Ephesus would eventually recognize that. He wanted to go to Corinth to continue his ministry over there where Paul had come from. And they said, You should go there because that's a messed up church right now. And not only will we send you there, we'll send you a letter of recommendation to take with you. And that's exactly what they did. Verse 27 And when Apollos wished to cross into Achaia, southern Greece, the brothers in Ephesus encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, what are the next three words? Say them out loud. He greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now he's ready. Now he's got it. Now he sees clearly. Now he's ready to push back the darkness in this most important and effective season of ministry, in his life, and he preached and led in a way that produced healthy, well grounded disciples as he rightly divided the word of truth. And later on, Paul himself would come to recognize that. He would recognize the important contributions of Apollos when he reminded the Corinthians in his first letter to them what were Paul's words? I planted, but Apollos watered, and God gave the growth. And all that became possible, all that became possible because Aquila and Priscilla made a personal spiritual investment in a man whose knowledge was incomplete, but whose spiritual potential was unlimited. Man, this is a beautifully instructive passage. On the primary calling, that our Lord gives to every single one of us, the calling to follow him and to grow as one of his disciples. And the priorities couldn't be more clear, could they? Feed yourself, learn with others, invest in somebody. And you know what happens when you do? God will give the growth. This is God's word. And let all who agree say amen this morning. Amen.